0: Welcome to the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, brought to you by Amoria Bond. In each episode, Amoria Bond will interview a prominent leader from across their specialist STEM sectors to discuss their personal experiences of progression and share invaluable insights and inspiring anecdotes of what progression means to them. This is Progressing Lives Everywhere. Hello and welcome to the second episode of our special mini series of the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, in which we're exploring with expert guests how to unlock effective communication. In this episode, we're delighted to once again be joined by Professor Damien Hughes, star of the High Performance podcast and author of Groundbreaking Liquid Thinking. In conversation with Andrew Beard, Damien shares fascinating insights into how high-performing teams and organizations communicate. Later in the series, Andrew will be joined by another familiar face and popular guest on the podcast, psycholinguist Felicity Wingrove, who is a recognised world leader in communication mastery, as well as Esther Christian, who specialises in communication using psychometric profiling, as well as presentation skills and self-awareness. Enjoy. Damien, thanks very much for joining us today and welcome to this edition of the podcast.
1: No, thank you for having me. It's a real honour to be asked, so i grateful.
0: Thank you. Specifically looking at uh, high performance cultures and communication, what traits have you seen within high performance cultures in the way that they communicate?
1: I think there's five things that I've spotted. I think it's a brilliant question, but what I've noticed, I've been lucky enough to spend uh, a lot of time in them. and looking at it through this lens and what I've seen is there's there's five things that seem to be relentlessly focused on within high-performing cultures. To make it easy for people, I, I came up with an acronym called STEPS, because I wanted it to almost be like a mental inventory, like a shopping list, that people can use it themselves and take some of these lessons into their own world. So the five things that I've seen that high-performing cultures do around communication is there's a relentless focus on simplicity, keeping things as simple as possible, but no simpler. So it's this idea that I remember many years ago interviewing Sir Alex Ferguson on this. And uh, the question I asked him was, what would he say is the difference between a good leader and a great leader? And he used a great example to illustrate it to me. I was in his office. He said, stand up. And he threw me a tennis ball. He said, "Catch that. caught Carter, he said, uh, how did you find that? I said, it was easy. Why? He said, give me back. He took two balls and threw them up in the air at the same time. He said, catch them both. Now I managed to do it, he said, How was that? So it was a bit harder, but it was fine. So then he threw three. And then he threw four. And on the last occasion, he threw five tennis balls in there at the same time with the instructions to catch all of them. But on that last occasion, I did well to catch one. Ferguson said, There's the difference for you. He said, because what good leaders do in the, in good cultures is they try and throw as much information as you, they can in the hope that some of it is relevant, some of it'll stick. He said, What great leaders do is they start with the question of not how many balls can I throw, but how many can you catch? And the reality is, for most of us, receiving one piece of information at a time allows us to digest it, process it, and do something with it. So simplicity is is one of the hallmarks of uh, high performing cultures and communication. The second one, the T part of the acronym, is about they create space to think. And the idea behind that is that in average cultures, one big complaint that you often hear about communication is the apathy of the recipient. People will say, oh, we do Q&A sessions, don't get the answers, or we have suggestion schemes and we don't get much response to it. Now, my answer to leaders that tell me that is that we're not wired to be apathetic. So if you're receiving silence, the silence is the feedback. And the silence then indicates one of two things. They either don't feel psychologically safe in your company to ask questions or to speak up, or they don't trust you, that you're going to handle that question in a discrete sensitive manner so learning to be comfortable with the discomfort of silence letting people just have time to think to ask questions is messy but actually it's a really important factor of getting people to invest in it think about how they're going to process it and apply it the third one it's a simple phrase to use but it's a huge area of high performing cultures which is emotional intelligence this is the idea of Treating people with respect, courtesy, kindness, all those different factors, recognising the human being rather than just the person doing the role, all those factors are absolutely critical for high-performing cultures. I'll give you just a neat anecdote about that. Many years ago, I went into a boxing gym in Detroit, called the cronk boxing gym, and it was a gym that produced, it was almost like a greenhouse of just consistent world-class talent. And I was intimidated when I got there. I felt a little bit out of my depth, and the head coach was a man called Emmanuel Stewart. And he said to me, how do you feel, Damien? And I gave him an answer. I said, oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. He said, how do you really feel? And I found that I had verbal diarrhea when he asked me that second question. I started telling him I was nervous, was anxious, I it not to be in this way. I was conscious he was busy. And after I responded the second time, he said, thank you for being honest. He said, that now means that we can work together. But when I got to know him a little bit better, I said to him, why did you ask me the second question? I gave you a polite answer. Why did you feel I need to come back? And he said, I always come back. The second question is when all relationships start. He said, because the pictures didn't match the words that you told me. You looked anxious, you looked frightened, you looked a little bit scared, but you're telling me you feel great. So that leads me to one or two conclusions. He said, you're either a liar or you're a sociopath. Hmm. He said, that if I'm going to invite you into my world, I need to know who are you. The second question just accelerates that conversation. And in the second response, she told me you were nervous. And that tells me that we can now be honest with each other. And he describes the emotional intelligence, steward does contain, then explain. And what he means by that is I need to convince you that you're safe, that we're working together, that I know who you are, that I know your story. And only when you feel those emotional impacts can you then start to explain how to work together. So that, in a nutshell, is what emotional intelligence really is. The P part of the acronym is practicality. And what that means is people don't use jargon. They don't use abstract language. They keep the language accessible and practical for anybody that's in it. So it's a really simple way that if you've got 20 experts sat in a room, but you've got one novice speak at the level of the novice, The experts will understand your point anyway, but language can be inclusive and often jargon can exclude people from the conversation, make them feel that they're not part of the culture. So paying attention to the inclusivity of language and making it practical and understandable is key. And then the final S that I've seen is the importance of storytelling. The way that we learn is through passing on stories and anecdotes, and it's almost that great tradition that goes right the way back to our prehistoric days we communicate through stories and if you want to tell people how they're expected to behave standards that they need to buy into intent of what you're coming into that organization stories are the most effective way of getting your point across quickly and memorably there's no easy answer to it. it's like an ecosystem of, of factors that need to be there but as I say I think that If anyone's thinking, how do I communicate in my own high-performing culture? Hopefully, that STEPS acronym serves as a decent shopping list, a mental inventory that allows you to go, am
0: I addressing all five of these factors? Yeah, because you benchmark against it, can't you? It's a very practical model you can benchmark against. And the emotional intelligence concept is really interesting, and, and clearly that underpins a lot of this. And that's, yeah. like, I think, it's 25 years old now, that book or that line of work that Daniel Goldman came up with, or he was obviously one of the pioneers of it. And I really, the, the Manny Seward story is great because I got a sense there that he was able to read your emotional cues, which is obviously a, a key part of being an emotionally intelligent leader or having an emotionally intelligent culture is to read those emotional cues that are been given off. Absolutely. That was his point that, to what he was saying to me about part of the success of the
1: boxing gym was that. At one stage, like I say, I think they had something like 30 world champions in a 25 year period. Now, forget the sport, forget the industry, even. just look at it from a human potential point of view. It was like a greenhouse of talent. And what Manny Stewart was adamant about was emotional intelligence, like the heart of it, in probably one of the most macho, alpha mm. environments you could go to. His point was, he said, every child that comes up the stairs into this environment, will have a story, and they'll have emotions flooding them. Maybe they're being bullied. Maybe they feel intimidated. Maybe they're frightened. Maybe they don't want to look ridiculous. We all have our own fears and insecurities. And his point was, I think I'm the greatest coach of boxing in the world, but I'm also self-aware enough to realise I can't coach you when those emotions are clouding your judgment. So I need to convince you that I know your name. I know why you're here. You're safe in my company. I care for you. They use the language of love and kindness in an environment that might seem incongruous. But it's only when you have that can you then explain how you're going to step between the ropes of the boxing ring and improve. Mm -hmm. Manish had a nice line. He said, what too many people do is they try to explain and then contain. And his point was, it's only when you prove you can deliver results that people suddenly start caring about you. We said, Mm -hmm. you can't do it in
0: that order. You have
1: to care before you can start to get the
0: results. Brilliant. I wonder whether Daniel Goldman realised that his work would find its way into the boxing (laughs) world when he started to put that together.
1: I mean, I think Goldman's work is fantastic. I'm a huge advocate of it. But I also think that what so many of these coaches were telling me was that they'd never heard the term emotional intelligence. Like You go to someone like Manny Stewart He's probably one of the least educated men I met during the research of it, but he was the most street smart by a million miles. He was a guy that never heard the term, but he would describe it as just pure common sense. Yeah, It was something that he was doing. So I think it's great that we have a title for it, but the reality is it's been around for
0: as long as human beings have been around yeah. and having to work effectively together. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, in one of the interviews you did recently, I was really interested to hear you say that the best coaches were not obsessed by having all the right answers, but they were obsessed by having an environment where questions could be asked and by how much conversation is happening. So could you talk us through that? Absolutely. So this comes back to
1: if we think about it in that inventory, this is the T part of the equation, creating space for people to think. So if you go into a culture or an environment and you immediately start making dictates or demands or telling people what you need to do and presenting game plans in a sporting environment, there's no space there for people to ask questions. That you're almost presupposing that your knowledge is infallible and this is the right answer. So what? So you're almost playing the game of guess what's in my head, and what will transfer what's in my head into yours. Whereas what I found the best coaches do is. And it took me a while to spot this. I will say it's almost the quietest of skills because you're observing something that isn't there. And it's only when you realize what isn't there that you see the art of what these coaches were doing. So they weren't walking in and making a series of demands or statements. They were posing questions and then they were comfortable with the discomfort of people being silent while they reflected. They were really hot on when anybody responded they treated them with respect and discretion and courtesy so i was recently working with a team with a coach where when one of the younger players spoke up some of the senior players at the back started to smirk and the head coach was immediately onto the guys that were smirking and trying to make each other laugh because his point was even that brief human interaction starts to undermine the psychological safety the guy that's speaking He's now worried about the senior man behind him laughing at him. So as he said, something stupid. So next time that question comes around, he probably goes into freeze mode of saying nothing. You know, let somebody else ask the difficult questions. So what I found is, it's the same in the corporate world as well as sports coaches. They're obsessed about creating that environment where they pose questions and allow people to find their own answers and their own conclusions. Because what we know is retention of the subject your thinking instantly makes you smarter in
0: the way that you're going to remember it and apply it. So if I'm a leader then, how do I go about creating this this environment, this steps environment within my business? Well, that's a
1: brilliant question. I think the point I would say is that start with what you already have rather than don't try to create something in a vacuum. So if you want to have the confidence that you can do it, all confidence stems from evidence. So if you can find evidence of where some of these best practices are already happening. And inevitably, they will be. There will be moments if you think about, say, if you're in a customer service role, think about which customers you have the strongest relationships with. And then rather than take it for granted or externalize the reasons, do a proper deep dive analysis on why do we have such a strong relationship. And inevitably, within that analysis, you will find evidence of these five steps. So it might be there. You've got evidence that you can take away and extrapolate and say, I hate using this sort of corporate language, but how do we codify what we're already doing so that it becomes replicable
0: and controllable in every customer relationship? So really look at where your success has come from, where you don't start looking at you know the other side of the equation, start to, to see the clues that you've left almost. And that's something that you do use a uh, common phrase on, on your podcast is success leaves clues. So look for the clues, look for the evidence.
1: And if you want, like, just a really simple barometer to catch yourself is if you find yourself saying, wouldn't it be great if more frequently than wasn't it fantastic when, you know that you're trying to create something in a vacuum. Whereas when you're saying, wasn't it great when we did this, when we found this, didn't the relationship go well when this happened, you're finding evidence. And that is a solid foundation to give you confidence that you know you can do it once and therefore. You can repeat it and do it again and again and again. Because all high-performing cultures, if there was one word I would use to describe them is there's a focus on consistency. It's about delivering the same thing consistently. When we have good days or bad days, we still turn up and deliver good high-performance consistently. So when you've had, whether it's your best sales results, whether, as I say, it's your best customer, find out what were those factors that are controllable and replicable. And then Mm -hmm. focus
0: on them to drive that consistency of high performance. When I was putting this together, it dawned on me that a lot of the interviewers and the questions I was asking was particularly around what leaders can do to improve their communication within business. But actually, the whole concept of effective communication is it's two way. Taking that into consideration, if I'm a a team player or or obviously in business an employee, what role do I have within progressing lives through effective communication?
1: I think this comes back to the question of accountability. That I think it's about taking accountability for what you have, where you are, in the moment that you're in. So I think any of us can start to do this and start to role model it. That we can't demand that other people do it and we don't do it ourselves. That people don't follow hypocrites in essence. What we know is that there's a three lenses that we assess each other by according to the American investor Warren Buffett. Buffett advocates that when we make decisions as to how we're going to act, we do things, do we have the energy? Do we have the intelligence to make the right call? But the third and most important factor on how anyone can play their part is through integrity. Do you role model what you're asking other people to do? And I think it starts from this idea of just being accountable and start role modeling what you want rather than expecting others to take the lead. It's
0: about us all playing our part from the moment that we're in. What came to my mind then was Kennedy's famous statement, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So the accountability, ownership, don't just leave it to the leaders to build this culture, play a part in it yourselves.
1: Well, I was talking about this recently to a friend of mine that runs a a small business. It's a catering business that's been basically wrecked during lockdown. He's had to pivot and offer like a takeaway service. And that's not what he does, but he's trying to sort of keep his business alive. And I was sharing with him the work of Daniel Kahneman when he talks about the peak end law. And Kahneman talks about there are three things that we remember about any individual or any business. We remember our first dealings with them and we'll remember our last dealing with them but significantly we remember the dealings with them when they were either at their best or their worst moments so the point is that how you behave at any time is always going to stick in somebody's mind so when it's about taking that accountability when you think for example if you're in a role where something has gone wrong with a client Rather than immediately scale it up and point to the bosses and say, what can you do? How do you fix it? Just simply taking that accountability is the bit that people are going to remember long afterwards. And all the evidence says that's your prime opportunity to build a stronger, deeper relationship by getting it right in the moment, apologizing and finding a way to correct it. Accountability has never been more important, especially in the times that we're in, of people starting to go, what can I do? rather than what can somebody do for me, like say that great,
0: that great Kennedy quote. Obviously the concept of feedback is critical within communication. Now I'm looking again at the STEPS acronym and I'm presuming that's a great model for feedback as well within a high performance culture. In addition to that, in your experience, how else is feedback delivered within a high performance environment? Again, that's a really brilliant question. I
1: think feedback is always done about behaviors, not the personality. So in high performing cultures, they will challenge your behaviours without challenging you as a person. The New Zealand rugby team say, you can behave like a dickhead without me believing you're a dickhead. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of quite pragmatic way of articulating it. Because I can challenge your behaviour. You could say to somebody, I think the way you just spoke to me was rude, without suggesting that you think they are a rude person. You could say, I thought you were abrupt. I thought you were very short or snappy with me it doesn't mean I think you're rude. I just think the way you spoke in that moment. And what that does for the receiver is that, one, I can't disagree with it because it's you're describing your experience of working with me. So it's not that I can say you're wrong. It's, okay, that's the way that you've interpreted it. But what it also does is it allows the receiver of that feedback to be able to accept it because you're not attacking me. You're attacking my behavior. And I can change my behavior. I can't change the person that I am. What that naturally, though, leads us to do is to say, well, what are the behaviours? Because this is another key factor of high-performing cultures. You have to know what the rules of the game are, because otherwise you can challenge behaviour. And if we've not agreed that that was a standard that we're all buying into, it becomes subjective. You might say, I think you spoke rudely then. And like, Well, I don't care, because being polite isn't something I agreed that I would do in this environment. Whereas if preceding this we've said, that speaking to our colleagues with respect and courtesy is a non-negotiable in this culture
0: and i don't do that you're well within your rights to challenge me as a fellow member of that culture that's a great point as you were talking through that i was taken back to i think it was about 6:45 a.m this morning maybe seven o'clock i was walking down the stairs and my wife said to me you're being very loud and, and I, I, you know, obviously in the morning, we, we can take a while to get going. And that's, uh, that's when the ego can come out. But, I, you know, I thought to myself, yeah, she's probably, quite right. I probably I'm being a bit loud. So I took it down a step. So it's a, it's a great point about focusing on, on the behavior and, and not the person. And the other point around having a template and a set of standards that we can refer back to it is really useful as well. Thanks very much for that. Taking things in a slightly different direction. I know you're a big advocate of kindness. Now, to some listening, that's going to sound quite soft. I think it's anything but soft to bring kindness to communication. So, what role does kindness play in, in communication? Again, it's
1: a really brilliant question. I think kindness is a superpower when it comes to communication, but also just uh, all, all human interaction. Kindness has to first of all start by being kind to yourself. I think when you have the capacity to be kind to yourself, it gives you the ability to then demonstrate kindness and empathy and understanding to other people. So when we talk about kindness ourselves, it's often listen to our internal dialogue and ask yourself, would you speak to anybody other than yourself in the way that we sometimes will berate ourselves for mistakes, ups or errors that we've made? And if the answer is, well, I wouldn't speak to anybody else like that and not expect it to be some consequences to the relationship why would you do that to yourself Mm. and i think what kindness does when we start from that premises is that is it accepts our fallibility it accepts that we all trip up and make mistakes and get things wrong occasionally and then if we can accept that about ourselves by definition we then have the capacity to understand and accept that other people can make mistakes as well and it's only through our mistakes does real learning happen we get things wrong, it breaks it out our autopilot behaviours of doing the same thing over and over again. And if we're smart about it, it forces us to reflect and analyse it. There's a really nice way in which you can simply be kind to yourself and to others. I often say, just remove pejorative statements from your conversation. So stop telling people that's right or wrong, because apart from verifiable matters of fact, Most of our communication is our opinion or our interpretation. When we instead remove that pejorative statement of right or wrong and just simply replace it with, is it helpful or unhelpful, far gentler and kinder way
0: of allowing ourselves to reflect and allowing others to reflect as well. Brilliant. You also touched on compassion there. And there's a a great concept I discovered last year, which was, Something along the lines of if someone does something that offends you or, or, you know, upsets you or whatever, write down 10 things about them that are good compared to this one thing that they've done to you. And that will help you before you, you know, go into an engagement or a conversation with them. And again, that's under that, that compassion, kindness banner. And it's crucial within communication.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that fits that 10 to 1 makes just fascinating that that relates to a study that was done by a guy called Dr. John Gottman. Gottman, he's got a nickname in Washington where he's based. He's called the Mozart of Marriage because over the years he's been skilled at being able to watch married couples within laboratory environments and then be able to get a fairly accurate prediction of the health and robustness of that relationship. Now, he doesn't tell them, so it's not a self-fulfilling prophecy. He just tracks it. But what he's found is that there's a ratio of what he calls bits that the best relationships have a ratio of five to one. And what he means by that is five bids towards somebody, which is an acknowledgement, a, a respect, a, a reaching out to them be one bid that you bid against them or you ignore them. And what he finds is that when you have that ratio right of around five to one, a relationship can pretty much survive an awful lot of stress and pressures that it comes under. So in the workplace, the same premise is there.
0: You yeah, exactly. find that the
1: ratio will get skewed slightly where he would estimate you could probably get away with a ratio of three to one within a workplace, but nothing below that in terms of you need to have an environment where just acknowledging the good stuff about somebody. As I've used a phrase, catching people in rather than
0: catching them out mm. has to be in that ratio and proportionality. Yeah, it's a great and very practical concept. Well, thank you very much for taking part in this podcast. What would your one final piece of advice be to progress lives through communication?
1: It'd be a repeat of one of the answers that we've just shared, which is start from the premise of kindness. Mm-hmm. Kindness and humility are the superpower that progressing lives through communication stem from. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Progressing Lives Everywhere, brought to you by Amoria Bond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, like and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the podcast. For more information on Amoria Bond's specialist services and to access the podcast show notes, head over to amoriabond.com. Join us next time as we continue to progress lives everywhere.